Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode. This is episode two of Art of Drug Choice, determining who is best suited for longer duration treatment. Of course, as physicians, uh, we have plenty of therapeutic options available that go beyond monthly, and most of us in the U.S. are utilizing treat and extend approach. Of course, some of us do PRN and you know PRN uh, XUS. What's common, and obviously a lot of physicians are moving towards treat and extend. So, Leila, I have a quick question for you. Obviously, now we have brolocizumab that's FDA approved, we have PDS that's FDA approved, and we're going to have frisimab, hopefully FDA approved soon for our patients with neovascular AMD. We talked about PDS a little bit. You know, patient selection is important in terms of looking at conjunctiva, making sure uh, they're agreeable to surgery and they're a good candidate for surgery. How about brolocizumab? Uh, you know, I know you said that it's, it's, it's your third or fourth line option, obviously because of the increased rate of inflammation and then the rare events of retinal vasculitis and retinal artery occlusion. So when, when you're looking at a patient, how do you decide that they may be a good candidate for bolecizumab? And I know you hinted a little bit about the gender uh, and whatnot. So can you tell us in more detail? Yeah, definitely. Currently, it's really the patient that's not responding to any other therapy for me um, and is having persistent fluid. Um, we're doing you know, frequent injections and fluid you know, is persisting, leading to um, visual acuity change. For those who are doing well and able to keep up with, you know, frequent injections, we have even stable, maybe a pocket subretinal fluid uh, with no interretinal fluid, those patients that kind of continue on the current anti-VEGF. So for me, brolocizumab has definitely a role, um, but it's, it, it is my um, sort of last choice in, in tre treatment algorithm. And what about, uh, you know, gender and what about history of intraocular inflammation in the past? Does that so let's say if you have a patient on monthly aflibercept with some fluid, would you take the risk if they, let's say, were females or, or they have history of intraocular inflammation, let's say, with bevacizumab in the past? You know, Ashad, that's a, that's a great question. You know, this gender um, disparity has always been quite interesting to me. Historically, uh, gender difference has been greater, um, uh, have a preponderance for women. Uh, when you have non-infectious uh, UVI, it's more common in women uh, uh, than men. Um, I think because they just have more systemic inflammatory problems. Uh, the, the review committee that reviewed Hawk and Harry did find a higher prevalence of inflammation in women. They also found a higher inflammation in, uh, in, in the Japanese race. There was a Japanese paper that came out recently that showed that the risk of inf inflammation was as high as nearly 10%, but they did not find it to be that in women. So it's always interesting. I don't think this is uh, my final decision making when it comes to picking um, drugs. Um, I do think that it's a discussion point. I will probably uh, stress that with my women a little bit more um, uh, just, as a, just, just as a point of reference so they can continue to monitor themselves. But I don't think it's going to be the major point that stops me for recommending the agent if I think they need the, um, uh, this particular treatment. If they had a history of intraocular inflammation, I may not take the risk um, of switching them, even despite them having a fluid. I, I may continue to increase, like, you know, shorten the interval, 
maybe we'll consider, you know, um, switching off and on the drugs to see if um, the switch would help, um, but not necessarily if there's a history of inflammation. Um, that said, I think patient um, is well aware of the risks and talk to them and they're just, you know, are concerned about their vision and want to try it, you know, I would offer it. But again, it would be really after significant discussion um, had so. No, I think I agree. I think a lot of chair time with discussion, then also management and patients who actually will call back reliably if they have any new symptoms compared to routine injection should be the candidates. And I think, you know, our staff needs to be trained too in terms of getting a call on a brolocizumab patient, if they're having any issues, you know, even though they say my eyes are irritated or foggy, which happens quite a bit a day or two after injection, I actually bring them back. So I think those are really important points for the listeners who use brolocizumab or plan to use brolocizumab is to make sure you have the right patient, you spend time discussing risk and benefits, and nothing is better than catching this IOI early and treating it aggressively so that patients don't end up with irreversible vision loss. And I think we already had a discussion about frisimab. We're all excited about this option based on the trials. The safety looks comparable. The durability looks much better than the flibercep. So, so we'll just have to wait and then see what, uh, what, uh, how frisimab performs in the real world. But based on the data, it should have uh, really significant impact in decreasing treatment burden. Talking about treatment burden, you know, of course, you and I are both heavily involved with gene therapies. And I think, yes, gene therapy is an exciting space. It's a new space, but of course we are not there yet. We still are years away for having uh, gene therapy available for our patients. That being said, we now have two pivotal uh, trials that have started with RGX 314. Uh, so Leila, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about RGX 314 and what the data have shown uh, and also about delivery of uh, RGX 314 supracroidal versus uh, subretinal. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, I agree uh, with you as well. Very exciting field. It shows much promise. Um, there's still some work to be done for sure. Um, I'm the phase one, two um, data for RGX, I think showed um, that the typical frequent flyer patient, the one that would have received about 10 injections or so in the year prior to that, got enrolled in the study. Um, they enrolled about 47 patients um, initially in a dose escalating uh, fashion with five cohorts. And um, those cohorts then were followed out to two years so far, and some of them even out to three years. And what it showed that the cohorts three, four, and five had visual improvements, stable to improve visual acuities. They had stable to reduce central retinal thicknesses, and they also had very good safety um, um, data. There was reports of changes, RP type of changes in the macula that was mitigated by procedural change, um, but overall safety is very good. Um, so I think it's promising to see that we may have of a one and done approach with this type of therapy where we're creating little biofactories that would solve this, uh, this um, you know, production of VEGF in the eye. And then that's leading or fueling the um, two pivotal trials, one being atmosphere um, and second one that's being initiated ascent trial. 
The other interesting part is the supercortical approach to this therapy with this um, RGX314 program where a phase two trial called Aviate is underway and uh, the drug is delivered supercortically. And so far um, in about limited you know, follow-up, we, we are seeing significant improvement as well in terms of um, reduction of number of injections needed during that time period. So overall exciting for sure. And we'll see what the future holds for this approach. Thank you, Lala. I think that was a great summary. So Joe, I'm gonna to get to you now with a couple of questions. So first question uh, for you is, how do you see gene therapy, if approved, uh, fitting in your practice, if it's a surgical procedure, uh, like the pivotal trials of subretinal delivery? What are your thoughts, Joe? Arshar, clearly we are at, at crossroads. Uh, when we're trying to minimize the treatment burden when it comes to uh, neovascular AMD and trying to maintain vision. Gene therapy offers that potential. Uh, currently, we have a disease that we treat within parameters. Um, when we see fluid, we typically give them injection. Now, whether it's a small amount of fluid or a significant amount of fluid, we typically adjust our uh, treatment um, regimen on, on either our PRN or um, a treat and extend um, a regimen. I think with that being said, that what gene therapy, um, at least from a surgical approach may offer you is if you have a, a, patient, a person to have a small amount of fluid, you may be less likely or less inclined to uh, uh, give another injection right away because you wanna make sure that the medicine that you're giving is actually working. So you may be a little more tolerant uh, if someone is having a subretinal a gene uh, uh, surgical procedure. Now I can see those individuals that are receiving injections, let's say every four, six, maybe even eight weeks benefiting uh, from this type of procedure. Um, but I'm not quite sure if people are doing well, let's say on quarterly doses, this will be something that I will consider. I agree with you. I think whenever we have a surgical procedure, obviously it's never gonna be first line treatment, but patients who need frequent treatments, like uh, Lela said, that were in phase one, two, a trial, and doing really well, if majority of them don't need supplemental injection, then I think they'll be excited uh, to have this one-time option um, uh, with subretinal gene therapy in the OR. The other question I have for you, Joe, is if suprachoidal gene therapy uh, pans out, which is an in-clinic procedure, do you think um, we'll have to take some patients to the OR to do subretinal gene therapy? Or you think if suprachoidal works, then there's no... Uh, room for subretinal uh, gene therapy. What are your thoughts, Joe? So the questions that I have is that can you deliver enough viral particles via the suprachoroidal space that you could, um, and let's say uh, ranibizumab injection, are the results and efficacy uh, similar with this biofactory? And I think the results so far, at least in the earlier trials, is yes. Uh, suprachoroidal appears to be uh, very similar uh, to the efficacy of subretinal uh, therapy. And this is important, at least from a, a proof of concept. Uh, still, we have to wait for the clinical trials uh, to be done. But this is done in the office, so you, so you do remove the, uh, the possible side effects of surgery. Personally, I'll have to look at efficacy from the subretinal trials, and then I'll have to see efficacy from suprachoroidal trials. And then what I would do is I would look at the patient characteristics. Maybe suprachoroidal trials will show that patients who are super high need may not do as well with, uh, with suprachoroidal and they may need subretinal in terms of protein production 
maybe being higher. We don't know that data yet. So I think we're going to all learn together um, uh, a lot about uh, gene therapy. And then we'll, I think, figure out what is going to be best for that patient that you're seeing uh, to give them the options. Lela, I have a question about safety. You know, there have been pigmentary changes that have been seen in, um, in subretinal gene therapy trials, and they were essentially dose-dependent uh, where uh, there were more changes um, with the highest dose. So what are the mitigation strategies that have been implemented, and, and do those changes really concern you? Because the program are moving forward, that means investigators have confidence that the efficacy of this uh, uh, approach of subretinal delivery or RGX314 as well as the safety uh, looks good enough to move forward. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You very much pointed out it was dose-dependent effect. It was also um, a fact that was seen when we're doing um, sort of superior to the macular approach in terms of injection. Um, so, of course, they settled on a lower dose um, for the uh, pivotal trials. Um, but that said, also procedure was uh, adopted where injections are now done inferonasal or directly inferiorly to stay away from the macula. And um, I think that area in general, while if we do see pigmentary changes in the future, would not have any impact on visual acuity. So I think that was a nice way to kind of mitigate those. No, I think that that's a great point. You know, personally, um, most of my patients, when I talk to them about pigmentary changes, as long as it doesn't involve the center, you know, in, in, in the earlier trial, it did because, as you said, of the superior delivery. So I think inferior blab further away from the macula and upright positioning, I think those mitigation steps uh, are, are good enough as far as I'm, I have noticed. But obviously, it's a new field. We are going to learn a lot. You know, we're going to have five-year data on all the patients with gene therapy. And we're going to see efficacy and safety. I know you're very much involved in ADVM 022 program and the phase one optic study. Would you mind sharing um, some of the data with us? Yeah, of course. So, so I think uh, one thing we have learned over the past several years is that delivery matters uh, when it comes to gene therapy. Uh, so imagine uh, injecting billions of vector in the vitreous versus subretinal space versus suprachoroidal space. So what we have seen in the intravitreal delivery of gene therapies, obviously, uh, you know, there is a risk of inflammation. And, and we knew that based on uh, the non-human primate studies, but we didn't know the extent of it and how dosing uh, in terms of uh, the dose uh, matter. So in ADVM022 is, is basically intravitreal gene therapy. You have uh, a vector 7M8, which actually can penetrate through the ILM and, and, and results in production of what carries the transgene of a flibercept. So you're basically injecting in the eye and then your eye is uh, producing a flibercept. And the data, protein data has been pretty impressive in terms of uh, the levels of a flibercept you are getting are, are close to a flibercept levels seen after four to six weeks after a bolus intravitreal injection. So, so efficacy has been great in the optic phase one study. There were four different cohorts in two doses. The first cohort had 6E11 uh, dose. Uh, the second cohort was lower, 2E11 dose. In the first two cohorts, 
we use PO prednisone based on uh, you know, utilization of PO steroids in, in other gene therapy trials, including Luxterna. And what we noticed was patient actually had uh, inflammation after they stopped uh, the PO steroids, so they needed topical. So because of that, in cohort three and four, uh, cohort three was low dose, cohort four was high dose, again, 6011. Uh, we had six weeks uh, steroid uh, drops uh, to manage inflammation. Uh, you know, so in terms of efficacy, you know, we have seen great efficacy with 87% decrease in uh, treatment, uh, you know, burden and, and, and really it's, it's, um, it's been impressive, the, the number of patients really requiring supplemental, you know, only one has required based on latest data in cohort one and, and a few in cohort uh, two and three, but 67% reduction there. Um, you know, what we notice is that the inflammation appears to be more severe in the high dose and, and it appears to be more longstanding. So there are some patients who go past one year and still require topical drops. So the bottom line has been the fact that the efficacy is great. The safety showed that we need to use a lower dose or even lower dose than 211, maybe in like tens to get the efficacy and try to have manageable Safety and of course, you know, you know about the Infinity trial, which was a DME study. It was unmasked because uh, patients, a few patients, develop hypotony and vision loss. So that program is not going to go forward now. So ADVMO22 will only be looked at in neovascular AMD. I know that's a lot of info, information, but it's it gets a little complicated with gene therapy, as you know. Yeah. No. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think its intravitreal approach would be very convenient um, in office pr procedure and a promising route. And to have options um, as such would be would be great too. No, I agree with you. I think it's very exciting. You know, both of you, both you and I are involved with this, and we actually see real effect. We see disease activity going away in these patients. So it is phenomenal in terms of efficacy. But obviously, um, safety is uh, something we uh, we are obviously paying very close attention to. So Joe, a question for you is when it comes time to consider gene therapy uh, for wet AMD in our clinics, how will you decide which patient is best suited for it? Well, I've given this some thought and um, the landscape is drastically changing. And the people that I'm initially thinking about for uh, gene therapy will be typically my high flyers, those that are receiving injections every four to six um, weeks for treatment. Uh, this presents a great burden for the, ther for the patients, and oftentimes they need a caregiver uh, to bring them in. But I also want to make sure they have a previous response to other anti-VEGF injections. This was an inclusion criteria in the clinical trial, so I do think it's, it's very important because you want to make sure that you are reaching the efficacy um, to maximize uh, the visual potential of this drug. If they, um, they need to have persistent or fluctuating intraretinal or, or subretinal uh, fluid, uh, I'm not quite sure if, they are, if, they're, if they're receiving every 12 or 16 week therapy, if I'm that concerned about considering those individuals uh, for, uh, for uh, uh, gene therapy. And when it comes to subretinal surgery, um, Individuals that may be on anticoagulants, I may want to consider twice about, uh, about the procedure that may not be my, my most ideal uh, candidate. So you have to look at multiple medical problems uh, because there is a risk uh, just for having anesthesia and taking these people to the operating room. So it's just 
it's important to find who you think may be a candidate for the surgery, but also think about who may not be a candidate for the surgery. So these are all things that um, as we get more comfortable with a, uh, with, with a therapy, we may adjust. Uh, you may uh, uh, transition early on to, um, you know, early upstream to your therapy. But I got a feeling that it's going to take me at least uh, six months to 12 months to really uh, figure out if I want to use this in, in those patients. And then it comes to trying to find the right person without the extra medical problems. Now we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back with the case in a minute. Thank you for your attention. Welcome back uh, to episode two of Art of Drug Choice. Now we have Dr. Leila Vizovic uh, presenting a case here. Leila. So I'm sharing with you a 75-year-old female who presented with decreased vision in her right eye after having had a neovascular age-related macular degeneration diagnosis for about four years in duration. Her visual acuity was 2100 in the right eye, 2040 in the left eye. Her OCT, as you can tell here, um, there's recurrence or activation of uh, neovascular AMD with subretinal, subretinal fluid presence, and there's um, several PEDs there, as well as drusenoid type deposits. In her left eye, you can um, see also has evidence of drusen and no really fluid, so really um, dry, um, age-related macular type of diagnosis. On fluorescein geography, early and in, in later phases, you'll notice that we very much have you know, early and late hyperfluorescence consistent with active uh, corneal neovascular membrane. And then the left eye really just has straight staining of the drusen with no evidence of uh, leakage. So I elected to um, treat her with bevacizumab. And this is a four-week follow-up, which you'll see nice resolution of subretinal fluid at that visit with visual acuity improvement to 2050 from 2100. We continue with that therapy for another nine injections. And now at every four to five inter week interval, she continued to have recurrence of subretinal fluid and her vision dropped to 2070. At that point, I opted to switch her to ranibizumab um, and started a loading dose of that uh, every four to five week interval with improvement of that subretinal fluid and improvement in visual acuity. And we continued on that therapy for a while. Now, unfortunately, you can tell the, that after 18 injections at that interval, she's starting to have recurrence of fluid again and division dropped it to 2080. And we opted to switch her to a flibrosap with a loading dose of that four to five week interval, improvement in visual acuity and resolution of fluid. And we continued with that therapy with extension to every six week interval and hopefully further than that. Layla, that's a, that's a really great case. I think we all have these patients where we cannot extend them beyond you know, four or six weeks with recurrent fluid, although we do see stabilization of, uh, of vision. So you know, there's one concept, you know, if patients are happy and they're doing well, if it's not broke, don't fix it to continue them on the same uh, therapy. Um, then you consider discussing with this patient the possibility of brolicizumab or were you, or were you and she content at the uh, level of treatment burden that she was coming in order to maximize her vision? I think that would be a choice, but given that she's responding very well, um, also kind of back of part of my mind is thinking like, is this a male versus female as well? With a little higher incidence of inflammation in females um, and 
having, you know, this female patient in front of me, I tend to kind of err on continuing what's working as long as she can tolerate every six week interval. Um, the visual acuity is excellent too. Overall, I think um, we're doing good. Now, I will, I'm gonna be excited about other, you know, options that are coming down the pipeline. Definitely treatment burden is real here, um, but with her really um, excellent responses, um, we kind of stuck with the, the current therapy. No, I agree with you. I think I would I would do the same. If I have a patient that's well controlled with uh, four to six weeks uh, flibercept or ranibizumab, I don't switch them to brolicizumab. I really only switch patients that have persistent disease with monthly injections and are losing vision over time. And I agree. I think this patient actually uh, may be a good, pa a good patient for a poor delivery system because they have high burden. They do respond to anti-VEGF. So I think uh, some something to think about once you have access to it is, you know, PDS, if they're comfortable, obviously going to surgery and also, you know, understand uh, the risk uh, and benefits of the procedure. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it will be a great choice for this um, patient. I think any of the um, options for decreasing the burden will be really well received. Um, and I think, you know, knowing that she really, now three drug choices continue to need a frequent injections. Um, you know, I think that right there gives us um, gives us real alternative to that we have to look at other longer treatment options. And PDS is definitely a good one. Thank you for an excellent case, Lala. Great presentation, excellent images, and and perfect management um, for the listeners. This case is available on itube.net with the associated images. This is the end of our episode two of Art of Drug Choice. Thank you again for listening to this episode.